So, you know, when you think about, you know, Palm Sunday, it's really kind of interesting. It was a day that started off great. It was a celebration where people were there gathered, you know, Josephus, the Jewish historian tells us there was about, you know, somewhere around, you know, 3 million people who were gathered there uh, in Jerusalem, and they were there to celebrate the Passover celebration. They uh, will see that they were taking their jackets and their clothes, they were taking palm branches, and they were laying them at uh, the feet of Jesus. Uh, they had heard the news, if you remember, that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. You know, in John chapter 12, uh, we see that Jesus had stopped there in Bethany, the home of, of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, and they wanted to throw Jesus a feast. I mean, if somebody raised you from the dead, would you want to throw a feast for him? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, can you imagine sitting around there at the dinner table, you know, with the one who used to stinketh, you know, and here you are, and here's Lazarus telling the story, you know, he's like, yeah, my sisters were all ticked off, you know, that Jesus, you know, kind of waited, he, you know, he didn't come running when they said I was sick, and, you know, and I was kind of worried too, I thought he was my friend, you know, and it's like, and I was getting sicker, and I think I'm going to die, you know, and next thing you know, I'm dead, and oh, I didn't realize that I was dead, but I know that I was dead because when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, I mean, all of a sudden I came out of the grave and I had my grave clothes on and I didn't, I didn't stinketh anymore, you know, and, and he's, you know, telling the story and it says, and many of the Jews started to believe. The, the people started to hear the story, the buzz of, that was going around Jerusalem. There was an excitement. People were realizing that, hey, there, there's, <laughs> there's something different about this guy. He doesn't just you know, tell us that he's capable of doing things, but he actually goes out and he does it. And uh, again, when you look at this story as it unfolds, here we have you know, Mary then coming and says, and she takes this very expensive perfume, this spikenard worth hundreds of dollars. I mean, a life savings really for her. And it says, and she breaks it open and she begins to anoint Jesus with it and she uses her hair. And you remember, you know, Judas gets all ticked off, right? He's going, hey, we could have taken that, you know, perfume and sold it and distributed it to the poor. And, and the word tells us that, you know, that was the last thing that was on Judas's mind since he carried the money box and all he cared about was himself. And here's Jesus going, but no, she's, she's anointed me for my burial. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I think about that with regard to worship, because some of us, you know, we're really reserved when it comes to our worship of God. You know, Mary was so appreciative. You know, she loved her brother. That's what we see. And she was so broken over the news of his death. I mean, how elated would, would, would you be if someone that you loved, Jesus came and brought them back to life? I mean, what could you... What could you give him? I mean, what could you offer him? And he doesn't want our stuff. He's worthy of our praise, amen? You and I all have been brought back to, to life from the dead. We were dead, the Bible says, in our trespass and sin, but he made us alive together in Christ Jesus. And yet, you know, we all feel a sense of peer pressure, you know, when we come into church and we come into worship. You know, some, you look around and, you know, and you see people with their hands, you know, raised high, you know, just completely just worshiping God, you know, in reckless abandon. And, you, and then you see people that, you know, just kind of looking around and, you know, not really sure and, you know, not really even engaging in worship at all, kind of going, I wish this would get over with, you know. And you go, but we were called to praise him. We were called to sing. You know, we're called to sing him. The Bible says that, you know, we're going to, God wants to put a new song in our heart. God wants us to sing his praises to him. 
And, uh, you know, again, it's a choice that we get to make, but here's Mary, and what a great model to think of on, on Palm Sunday as we go into this week, that you and I would come with that kind of heart that says, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care what the people around me are doing. That you'd have that freedom, not just on Palm Sunday, but every time that we come into worship here, that you'd go, you know, sometimes you feel like standing. Sometimes you feel like sitting. You don't have to stand because everybody else stands around you. We usually start on our feet, but you can sit. You know, maybe you feel like kneeling. You know, maybe you feel like just getting on your face before God. The key is, is to be obedient to him. Amen and the things that, that Jesus is calling us to do. But see, we get stuck in our emotions, or, or not emotions, but we get stuck in our routines. You know, we sit in the same place, we do the same things, you know, week in and week out, and we get comfortable. And unfortunately, that's not a good thing, you know, when it comes to our relationship with God. You know, he wants to provide comfort, but his comfort isn't the comfort, you know, it's not like a my pillow, you know, that's made, you know, for us. He wants to provide comfort in the midst of our storm. He wants to provide comfort in the midst of our pain. He wants to provide comfort in the midst of our suffering. He wants us to know that when we're going through these things that he said that we'll go through, that we never go through them alone. That's what's comforting. We're going through that during our study in the book of Job. It wasn't that Job was asking God to restore all of his stuff to him. What Job wanted was to sense and, and know that God's presence was there. And that's what communion is all about, that we can know that too. That you can know as you break that bread and you drink that cup today, that you do it in remembrance of the Lord. And he said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And so we realize, like I said, there's about 3 million you know, people that are here for this feast there in, in Jerusalem. And as we take a look, you know, a closer look, there's, there's a lot of things that are going on you know, uh, in the city. I mean, it turned from a, a time of celebration uh, to a time of frustration. You know, many are frustrated because they thought that when Jesus came into the city, their hope was that, and again, a misunderstanding of Scripture. They thought that he was going to overthrow the Roman government and he was going to put the Jewish leaders into power. You know, they couldn't imagine, you know, their Messiah you know, riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. They thought that, you know, as Greg Laurie has well said, that Jesus would be riding in on Air Horse One, you know, and that he would conquer, you know, the Roman authorities. And again, then he would establish his kingdom. But here he is. And, and, and trust me in this, the Romans would have understood this. When he came in on the colt of a donkey, Roman generals, when they returned back from war, when they had conquered their enemy, didn't come on their horse that they went to battle with. They came back riding on a donkey, meaning that they were victors, that they were conquerors. Do you believe there could be a message in what Jesus was declaring as he rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey? Yeah, I believe that with all my heart. One of the things that we see then is, you know, Jesus moves as he's coming into the city and we see only the second time in scripture that Jesus weeps or Jesus wept. The first time he wept, we remember, was where? The tomb of Lazarus, right? The second time is right here when he looks out over Jerusalem. And it's interesting in the Greek language, it means that he wept convulsively. I mean, he, this was the deepest type of cry 
that you could cry. And it would have caught the attention of the people. Because you would think that, you know, if they're crying out, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means saved now. And then they're raising their palm branches and they're throwing their coats, you know, on the, on the ground in front of him. You would think that, you know, it'd be like a parade where the mayor, you know, or some dignitary would be going like this. And, hey, you know, and here's Jesus. I mean, he is crying uncontrollably. Because he realizes they don't get it. The same way many times I don't get it. And you don't get it. We can be just as guilty as those religious leaders. You know, they're just kind of going through the motions. You ever thought about, you know, what makes you happy? What are, what are things that make you happy? You don't need to shout that out, you know, but just you think in your own heart. What, what makes you happy? And then you think about what are things that make you angry? Because as we look at this text here this morning, it moves from a great celebration and it ends with a great display of anger, a righteous indignation that Jesus has for not the pagan world, not for the Romans, but for the religious Jews, for the religious people is where his indignation is because they've done something. They've done something that maybe we've done as they've turned God's house from a house of prayer into a den of thieves. Meaning that it's not about, you know, seeking him and truly seeking, you know, his will, but it's, you know, whatever we want it to be. It's why in Revelation, you know, Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. He's on the outside looking in. He's wanting to come into our worship. He's not there to reject us, but he's going, whatever you guys are doing, it's not, it's not about me. And we realized that was just a number of years after Jesus had resurrected and ascended back into heaven. You know, that's why the Bible says, you've not lost your first love. So don't get me wrong. It's not like we've lost it. He says, but you left your first love. You walked away. It's an act of free will. John, the apostle writes in 3 John 1, 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. You know that anger can be a good thing? I mean, I know people struggle with anger. I mean, we get prayer cards every week. People come forward and pray. They go, Pastor Mike, you know, I just, the, the longer you live, it seems like the angry where we get. You know, there's just things in this world. They, they make us angry. And there is a righteous indignation. And Jesus is going to display that. But Ephesians 4.26 tells us this. says, be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. So we know that anger can be a bad thing. You know, Proverbs 29, 11 tells us a fool vents all of his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. And so there's this, this balance, you know, that we, we long for in life. Here it is, a, a celebration here in Palm Sunday, like I said, that, that turns into, you might say, a spring cleaning, you know, as Jesus goes through the temple area. And this is for the second time. But that might even be an encouragement to us today. You know, this isn't the first time that Jesus drove out the money changers. He did it when he first went into his public ministry. He went in and drove out the money changers. And here he is doing it again. Have you ever come to a place in your life you felt like, man, I need a cleansing. <laughs> I need a second cleansing <laughs> or a third cleansing. I just want you to know that, you know, God knows. God wants to sanctify our lives. You know, we keep thinking, well, I'll clean up my act. Have you found that it's impossible to clean up your own act? But Jesus can clean up our act. You know, 1 John you know, 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. 
Verse 9 says, but if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so this morning, there's probably much that we can glean from this. If you look in verse 28 there, it says, and when he had said this, he went on ahead going into Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. He says, and it came to pass when he came near uh, Bethphage, and Bethany on the mountain called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. That'd be really difficult to, to get on and ride, I can tell you that. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. How would you like to be in that position as a disciple? We're gonna go steal somebody's colt. You know, it's not stealing it because obviously Jesus prepared for it. He's definitely planned for it, but it sure appears that way to them. That's got what they got to be thinking. And he says, those who were sent went their way and they found it just as Jesus had said to them. It says, but as they were loosing the colt, the owner of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And then they said, the Lord has need of him. And when he hears that, what does the man do? Okay. The Lord has need of him. Here, you can have it. What if, what if God came to you today and, and something that was a possession of yours and he said, the Lord has need of it? Because guess what? He does. He does all the time. And man, we hold on to things. You know, we, 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 you know we, we live in a country of hoarders. Would you agree? I mean, how many Daryl's mini storages does one city need? You know, I mean, seriously, you know. But you go, that's the world we live in. And yet we could meet so much need if God would make us merciful. You know, I was reading a study yesterday, you know, by a pastor who said, you know, we're going to stand before God one day. And he goes, and some of us are going to find when, you know, we stand there at the Bema seat and we're judged by God that we're going to go, God, you know, no one tricked me. You know, I knew their motive, so I didn't give. I held on to this and I held on to that. You know, they didn't pull the wool over my eyes. And you go, and you think about that, you go, does, does God cause the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust? And you go, yeah. But see, we, we get so proud, you know, that we're so discerning and we're so this and we're so that, which is nothing more than just pride. Or you go, did Jesus let people take advantage of him? That's my question. Did he? Yeah. Did people take, have you taken advantage of Jesus? Have you ever said, oh Lord, if you'll do this for me, I'll, I'll never... And you turn right back around. You don't, you don't think Jesus knew in advance? He says he knows our thoughts. <laughs> he knows everything about us before we do it. And what does he do? He still loves us. But we live by the mantra, you know, do it to me once, shame on you. Do it to me twice, shame on me. Pride. And Jesus isn't motivated by pride. He's motivated by love. We see it all throughout this. It says, and then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they sat Jesus on him. And again, it was Jesus telling them, you know, you'll find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. What does that tell us about Jesus? And it's something we should find comfort in today. He's in control. When you don't understand what's going on, you know, you imagine the disciples, okay, he says, go get this colt. We don't have any idea, you know, and just say this. What is Jesus teaching the disciples to do? And what are they learning? to trust. They're learning what faith is. Isn't that what he's doing in all of our lives? He's stretching us and he's growing us. And it's such an important point. It's not logic. Is this logical, you know, to them? Would it be logical to us? And you go, no. 
transcends, you know, logic here. The Christian life is a life of faith. I mean, you imagine, you know, Jesus, you know, there being 4,000 at one time and 5,000 at another that need to be fed. And Jesus is going, you know, here, let's feed them. And they're like looking around going, with what? And Jesus goes, bring, bring me, you know, what? What do you guys got? And they go, Lord, we got to, we got to, you know, we, we didn't, we packed light. <laughs> we got a couple of fish and, you know, two or three loaves of bread. And Jesus is going, that's enough. You got to, what do you think they were doing in that moment? I mean, they're going, what scripture tells us. They're thinking he's nuts. They're thinking he's lost his mind. And what does he do? He prays over it, right? And everybody's full. And they're picking up baskets, right, of extra. He didn't do this once. He does it twice. You know, can you imagine that? And then remember, you know, Peter. Remember uh, when the Jewish religious authorities came to Jesus and they wanted to know if, you know, if, if the Jews had to pay taxes or was that just for the Romans? And Jesus said, well, you know, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and unto God that which is God's. And then he tells Peter, you know, later on, he says, you know, Peter, you know, um, just so that, you know, we don't offend anybody here. He says, go down to the beach and, and uh, cast out your line. And the first fish that you catch, what's going to be in its mouth? The taxes, Right. He goes, enough to pay your tax and my tax. Can you imagine Peter going down? With, I mean, do you think Peter was talking to himself? That's all I want to know. You know, this, he's nuts. He's nuts. I'm sure I'm going to throw the line out there. I'm going to catch a fish, which I don't really catch that many fish anyway. Jesus knows. Every time he gets, comes around, he's having to tell me fish on the other side. I'm not that good of a fisherman. But yet he says the first fish I'm going to catch is not only going to be a fish, but it's going to have tax money in its mouth. Somebody, you know, yeah. No, it's, it's crazy. But it's faith. He's saying, you can trust me. And again, and what he's telling them, he's telling me and he's telling you today. Can we trust God? Yeah. Then we say that and you go, but do we? Do we? Because I think a lot that were there that day said the same thing. God knows what we have need of even before we ask. Isaiah 55, 8 puts it like this. is for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. It's interesting, you know, as Jesus tells the disciples to go and to get this cult. He's fulfilling scripture. You know, you can read along with me there in Zechariah 9, chapter 9, verse 9. Because it tells us how the Messiah is going to come into the city, but it doesn't tell us when he's going to come in. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the full of a donkey. Back to Luke 19, pick it up there in verse 36, and it says, And as he went out, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. It's all starting to make sense to him now, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees then called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Like I said, Hosanna, Hosanna means save now. 
Again, the Jews, they were hoping, they were hoping Jesus was the, the promised Messiah. They were hoping that he would overthrow the Roman authorities there. And again, but what does he do? He comes riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey and he doesn't overthrow the Roman government. And so very quickly, we talk about people being fickle. The same group that's here today that's crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Within a week's time, we'll be standing and yelling at the top of their lungs, crucify, crucify, crucify. And yet we see from the cross, like I said, does, does God you know, know our hearts? And does he love us in spite of ourselves? And we think of the words that we'll study on Friday, on the Good Friday service, you know, the seven statements from the cross. One being Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Did Jesus know what we had done? And he went to the cross anywhere. I love that Michael Card song, you know, you know, talks about, you know, we nailed him to the cross, but did we need to nail him to the cross for his love would have held him there? And it's so true, the love that he has for us. Remember, you know, while they were focusing on celebrating, you know, Jesus and he's coming into the city, John chapter one, verse 29 says, you know, John, remember when he came on the scene uh, and he ends up baptizing Jesus, says the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the lamb of God. Book of Revelation tells us the same thing. The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world ever was. He came into this world to die for our sins. Once and for all. To give us not just a reason to celebrate, but a reason truly to worship here. Verse 41 in Luke 19 picks it up and it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, and pay attention to what he's saying here. This is a group of religious people, okay? could be us today. People who gather, who come to church, who want to celebrate even the Passover, you know, the fact that the lamb, you know, because remember they took the lamb and what did they do? They would look for a spot or blemish, you know, they would offer up one without spot or blemish, right? Did it take away their sin? No, but it covered their sin for a year. So it gave them great opportunity for celebration. There was religious people here this day. And here's Jesus speaking to them saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the Lamb of God had come. It says, but now they are hidden from your eyes for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Prophecy, so important that we understand it. Not to be ignorant of it. The hour that it speaks of there is the hour of Jesus' redemption. Remember, you know, we, we just talked about earlier in Luke 19 how Jesus would come into Jerusalem. He'd come on the foal of a donkey. But now we learn how 
you know, not just how he came, but when will Jesus come? Does the Bible tell us, you know, when Jesus will come? Well, it doesn't tell us when he's going to come in the rapture of the church, but it tells us definitely when Messiah would come into the city here. You look there in verse 42, he says, if you had known even you, especially in this, your day. So Jesus is talking about a very specific day. I shared with that with you when we started the service in Psalm 118. This is the day. Palm Sunday is what Jesus is referring to here. So it doesn't, the Bible doesn't just predict how the Messiah would come, but it also tells us when Messiah would come. Many of you would know this. You can study this out. Those of you that don't, you might write this down and study it for yourself. We don't have time to walk completely through it today, but you know, Daniel chapter nine. Remember when Daniel was in Babylon? He was seeking God, right? He was there seeking God's will for the protection of Jerusalem there. And so God gave Daniel tremendous insight. He was, there was an angelic visitation, and God told him the timeline uh, of this decree that would go forth from Artaxerxes, and it would be 483 years from that moment until Messiah would come. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 and 26 says this. It says, know therefore and understand that the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that was rebuilding the wall, that Nehemiah, uh, we read about in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse, well, chapter 1 and chapter 2, that uh, he tells us about that he has a desire to go and he asks, asks Artaxerxes for papers uh, that would allow him to do this. So Artaxerxes makes a decree uh, and we'll see that in a second here. He says, and until Messiah the prince, there shall be, and he, now he lays this out. Daniel's prophecy. Now, it says there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall. So it's talking about what's going to take place in Jerusalem when the walls are built. Not the temple, but the walls themselves. It says after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war of desolations are determined. So Daniel prophesies this timeline of the Messiah coming into Jerusalem here. Remember, we read this in Daniel uh, 9.25. Seven sevens or seven seven-year periods. So if you took seven times seven, that equals what? Seven times seven is 49. That's when the walls of Jerusalem would be built. And then from there, there would be 62 sevens or 62 seven-year periods, which equals 434. So if you add 434 to the previous 49 years, you get 483 years total. Now you think, well, why is this so important? So you think about, we know the date, right? March 14th, 445 BC from Nehemiah chapter two, when Nehemiah asked the king for the letters. So the decree was, was given uh, for the walls of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. So if you use a, a lunar calendar, you can Google stuff and you can find different years and different dates and there's all kinds of different reasons for it. Let's just agree this. It's kind of like somebody going, I'm pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. One thing that all those agree is what? Jesus is coming back, amen? So you might don't get so caught up in this, but there's a specific date. Jesus, I think if you read Luke chapter 19, is it very safe to say Jesus is talking about a very specific day? He said, if you would have known the time, if you would have known the day. So he's not talking about epics or periods of time. He's talking about a specific day fulfilling 
prophecy, this prophecy in Daniel here. So if you go forth from March 14th, 445 BC, and you add, so if you take, you know, 483 times 360, based on a lunar calendar, the biblical calendar in Jesus' day, that would come out to 173,880 days. And if you take into account leap years and all that kind of stuff uh, that you can, you arrive at a date of April 6, 32 AD. Now there's different arguments, you know, did, was it 33 AD, was it 30, like I said, go with the flow. It's a specific date. Just say April 6, 32 AD. Jesus is riding in to Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. Would you say, is that a coincidence? Or would you say that that's divine providence? Yeah, and that's exactly what it is. We know this about our life. Can you add a single cubit to your life about worrying about it? But we do, right? You go, but has God appointed the number of our days? Should we trust that? Are we going to change it? I mean, you're going to get to heaven and they're going to look at the book of your life and it's going to have like, you know, scribble marks on it. Like you were supposed to come this day, but oh, and then, oops, but yeah, that was good. You did a bob and weave. And so you made it two more days. You know, you were supposed to be here on Tuesday, but now it's Thursday. No, he knows the hour which will, will go to be with him. God knows everything. What he's wanting us to do is what? To trust him to place our faith in him, to walk with him, to follow him, to obey him. Would you agree with that? That's what he's teaching us here. You know, Paul warned Timothy of the same thing in the last days. The lifestyles would be exactly the same as it was in Jesus' day. You can read that for yourself. Second Timothy chapter three, verses one through five. But the point is there's an entire city here, church, that doesn't know the day. They're not aware of the day. They're not aware of the moment. And yet, I think if, you know, if we were there, I don't think there, there was too many of the people that we'd go, oh, they're not religious. They were very religious. They were there to make sacrifice for the Passover so that their sins could be covered for a year. Who doesn't want their sins to be covered? They were religious. But they didn't have a relationship with God. We can come to church today and be religious and not have a relationship with God. That's what he wants. That's what he came for. That's why he died. Not just to provide heaven for us, but to provide himself. That we could have a relationship with the God who created the heavens and the earth. Pick it up there in, in verse 43. It says, for the days will come upon you. It says, when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close in on you on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Do we know a year where that took place? After Jesus' death? A.D. 70, Titus comes into Jerusalem, sacks the city, 600,000 Jews die. Their children and many are taken into, again, slavery. Not one stone, Scripture tells us, was left unturned. They destroyed the temple and the temple's never been rebuilt. And Jesus is telling this all in advance. Can we trust him? Should we? Should we follow him? 
Should we place our faith in him? Should we obey him? Yeah. You know, when we think about Palm Sunday, you know, we, we should celebrate. The joy of the Lord should be in our hearts today. This is the day. We should be singing it. Don't you love those kind of songs? You ever get that? I hope that stays in your head. You know, I hope it stays in your head all day. That you just, when you go, all of a sudden you go, it's just got such a catchy, you know, I mean, just a feeling to it. This is the day. Somebody's having a bad day. You go, no, 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 no. This is the day. And then what do they tell you to do? Shut up. You know, because we like our pity, right? You know, we like humdrum. We like, you know, and somebody's going, no, 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 come on, come on, get outside yourself. Get your eyes off yourself. Get them on Jesus. This is the day. This is the day. And all of a sudden you go, okay, and something happens. That's the beauty of worship. That's the beauty of celebrating Jesus. Man, the being in the presence of God, enjoying him. I mean, and you don't have to just do it in church. You can do it in your, your car, except try to keep both hands on the wheel, except if you're at stoplights, that is perfectly legal and it's fun. I love, I was sitting at the stoplight and, and I pulled up, I was going to the car wash and there was a car next to me and the person was going like this. I mean, they were going at it. And I was looking and I'm looking and I start laughing and I'm just watching them and they never look over at me. So when they go, I got to flip a U, but they're going to go. So I go and they've got Christian stickers all over their car. So I got to believe that it wasn't, you know, any other station than their favorite Christian station or they had their music in and they were just going to town. And what was funny was it's infectious. All of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm laughing at this. And, I, and when I saw that it was, they were Christian stickers on the back of it, it brought songs to my mind. And all of a sudden you go, wow, that's, that's what we should be doing. No matter what, no matter what we're going through. This is the day. This is the day. Again, look at, uh, you know, verse 45. Let me ask you a question. Does, does, would you say that everything that we do in this life should be done with the gospel in mind? Would you agree with that? That everything we, should, we do should be done through the lens of Scripture. Would you, would you agree with that? That we should, as been well said, we should have a biblical world view. We should see things the way that God sees them. And there's a struggle because the world wants us to believe certain things and God wants us to believe other things. The Bible says, be not conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of our minds. Yeah. You look at that in verse 45. We know this is true. He says, then he went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. It says, and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. Remember, we know this from John chapter 12. They were, they'd already put an arrest warrant out for Jesus. They wanted Jesus dead and they wanted Lazarus dead too, because what? Lazarus was living proof that, that Jesus could raise the dead. And people were believing in him. They're going, man, as he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he said, and he who believes in me will never die. Well, he'd said that. And all of a sudden they're going, <laughs> and he means it because Lazarus, what? Four days in the grave. They knew four days and you what? Stinketh. Okay. That was the proof. That's why Jesus delayed. He wanted the people to smell death and it stinks. 
And then he brings Lazarus forth from there, out of the grave. And so they wanted to kill him. It says, and they were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. They wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. So Jesus comes in, like I said, and he cleanses the temple for the second time. He'd done it three years early. He does it again here. What's the point? This is what I closed with. If the worship team's back there, I'll invite them to come up. And those of you that are going to pass out the elements of communion, you can come up as well. But don't stop listening. Because this is probably the most important part is right here. Jesus goes in for the second time and he cleanses the temple. What is Jesus doing here? What's, what's the point here this morning? Jesus is seeking, church, to drive out anything in my life, in your life, that is keeping us from coming to him. Would you agree with that? That he seeks to drive out anything in my life and your life that keeps us from coming to him. Now remember, he's dealing with a bunch of religious people here, okay? And I want you to think about this. I want you to think about it really good because 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says we are to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith before receiving communion, right? We're, we're to look within our own heart to see are we really, are we religious? Are we like those that are there around Jesus that day? There's three million, you know, that have come to town for this great celebration. And he says, but you didn't even know the day. And he says, and now your eyes are going to be darkened and you're going to miss it. And many people died. Their, their place of worship was utterly destroyed. Why? And it was right there in Scripture the whole time. Nobody's going to plead ignorance before God. Here's Jesus teaching us in the New Testament through the Apostle Paul. I want you to think about this. Because here Jesus is standing in the temple, right? He's standing in the temple and he's driving out the money changers who are a stumbling block and a hindrance to people coming to Jesus. And then Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? So here's the thought as we close in prayer. Receive communion today. If Jesus came to your temple today. And he's here. Trust me in this. Wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he's here in the midst of us. Okay? I might not be the greatest at math, but I'm going, there's five people right in front of me, so it's pretty safe to say he's here. Amen? And if he came to your temple today, is there anything? And be honest with yourself. 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. Is there anything today in your temple that Jesus, if he came today, that he would be seeking to drive out? And what we need to do is exactly what Larry was saying in worship as he was praying this morning, that we need to invite God to go, God, search me. Maybe I don't even see it. Maybe I'm like those that are here. I missed it completely. I'm blind to it. Thank God Jesus isn't. We all have blinders in our life. 
but that we would invite Jesus right now before we would receive communion. So that way we could receive communion with gladness going, thank you, Lord, that it's your body broken for me. This sin that I, that I, Pastor Mike is, is saying that, that there's something in my life today that I know you want to drive out. You want to drive that out of my life so that I can experience this cleansing, this sanctification and appreciate it fresh this Easter, what you have done for me. Don't let Easter ever grow old. Don't let it just become, you know, it's Easter. <laughs> no, the power of Easter, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible says, works mightily in us. Are you allowing him to do that? Ask him to drive those things out of your life. There's so much that we can celebrate this week, amen? So much to thank Jesus for. So much to worship him for. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Ask God. Whatever the Holy Spirit quickens to your mind. And he already did it. <laughs> as soon as I said it, the Holy Spirit's here. And you, and you go, Lord, you know that thing that's in my life. You know that habit, that attitude, that sin that I've fallen back into, that I once confessed as sin, that I, I'm tripped up by it again. God, you know what it is. I know what it is. And God, I'm asking you, because I can't. I can't drive it out, but you can. And he will. And that's what we celebrate today. We come to the cross that he died for that sin. Don't hold on to it in your pride. Don't think, oh, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm trying. I think I'll overcome it. No. Surrender. Remember what I said earlier? Trust him. Place your faith in him. Follow him. And obey him. That's the call of God in our life. That's how we move from missing it to seeing it and to enjoying it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, Lord, the privilege going into Easter week to be reminded of your passion, the suffering that you went through on our behalf. It should be me. It should be us who are suffering. It's me and us that deserve the crucifixion. But you who knew no sin became sin for us, that in you, in Jesus, we could become the righteousness of God. May that break our hearts, Lord. May it humble us today that you have lavished us with grace, with mercy, with your kindness, with your love. May we not take that for granted today, God. May we rejoice and enjoy it as we pray in Jesus' name. And we all agreed saying amen? Amen. Let's worship him and enjoy this time of communion.